This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review You'd Prefer an Astronaut by Hum. In 1995, this was like mind-blowing. The giant D chord at the beginning is just one of the best single notes ever played. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay? Yeah? Today, we are recording on the beginning of free agency, but this episode will not post for two weeks. So, in the meantime, do you uh, are you enjoying the acquisition of Peyton Manning, Reggie Wayne, Joseph Adai uh, <laughs> on, their, on your Cleveland Brown squad? Or? I was shocked when the NFL overturned the trade uh, that uh, the Redskins did with the Rams, and now that we'll, we'll have RG3. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. No, I mean, this whole... This whole process is painful for both of us. It is. Both of our teams are used just to, to, to uh, run the price up on free agents, just use this to run their price up. So, Yeah, if it's two weeks later and, and Mario Williams um, so shockingly has signed with Seattle and not Buffalo, I will uh, not be too um, You won't be shocked? I won't be shocked. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah. One thing that is shocking is that it has taken us so long to get to this album that we're reviewing tonight, and it is Hum's 1995 album, You'd Prefer an Astronaut. To me, this is one of the critical albums of the 1990s, one of the albums that defines the decade. Well, maybe that's just me. That just that might be me. I don't. Does that for you too, Jay? Uh, are we going to review it right now? What are you doing? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm saying, is this one of the most important albums of the 90s? Of all time? Yeah. Um, I would say it's a landmark album. Yes. I'll give you that. Oh, okay. Well, we need to ask our guests that same question. We have a special guest tonight. Joining us from the foothills of Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if it's the foothills. I've just heard that term before, foothills. But from Nashville, Tennessee, via Columbus, Ohio, and Los Angeles, California, Mr. Sean Foster. Sean, welcome to the show. Howdy. I am uh, so stoked to be here. It's uh, it's good, and the the record you're doing is absolutely a landmark record. So I think we can can start off on the fact that I agree, and uh, it's going to be a fun one. Go. Excellent. I was actually being a little bit. I was using a little bit of hyperbole, believe it or not, when I said it was a landmark. But I do think that this is a pretty important <laughs> record. But we should. Well, uh, I can I can I can, interu- I can interrupt you by saying how important I feel from the get go. This is the only record or band that I've ever lied to people about and say that I mi- I saw a show that I actually missed. So um, <laughs> that I that I chose not to go to, and for many years I was like, oh yeah, I was at that show. So just so you know, that I was a liar about this band. That's how much I uh, uh, hate the fact that I missed the show I'm talking about and that I truly lied. So there we go. Now the usually it's the other way over, around. Go on. Usually people lie about, not lie, but they forget that they went to a show that they actually did. But you're doing the opposite, which is, that's good. Yeah, I, did, well, I did for many years. I did, yeah, cause been, yeah. I did for many years, and I realized if I'm going to be an adult, I'm going to have to just come clean and say, you know what? I chose not to go to that show. But uh, Was this at Stashes? Idea. No, was this the... was uh, down at the Union, down in Athens, Ohio, oh, where okay. I went to college. Oh, man. Yeah. I think it was them and the poster children, and I, I decided to stay and drink beer from a keg as opposed to, uh, to go see the show, because at that time I thought, oh, they'll be here a hundred times, and well, I never saw them, so wow. there we go. Wow. We should, um, we should talk about 
a little bit before we get into the record, um, Mr. Foster's career as a director, which is pretty awesome. We've never had a director on the show. Uh, We've had a music producer and educator. We've had a journalist. We've had musicians. We've had an author. We can now, we can put this notch in the belt. We have a director. You've worked with some pretty cool bands, not just uh, people from Columbus are going to know Gaunt and Tim Easton um, and The Sun, but Drive-By Truckers, uh, Chevelle, Stabbing Westward. Do you have any crazy stories you want to tell us about bands uh, going insane while on the set of a music video? Well, I, I, I do, and I've actually even got one that kind of connects with Hum, uh, surprisingly. I, uh, I directed a couple videos for the Deftones, and the Deftones, that is, I believe, one of the ways that we were able to become friendly, and I got the gig, was uh, there were two records that I, I just waxed poetically about to them, and uh, one of them was Hum, and the other was The Cured Pornography, and... Uh, uh, we got into a talk about hum so much that they were like losing their mind, and I think that's what got me the gig. And uh, yeah, we've had um, one band in particular uh, that I'm not going to mention. We had a, I don't even know if we want to go into that actually. Now that I think about it, it's probably not good for. <laughs> if for legal reasons you cannot go into it, we understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I will say one bad thing that I did once. Um, I actually tried to get into a fist fight with Fred Durst at a, a party in New York after the MTV Music Awards. Maybe it wasn't the best idea, but I, I really effing hate that band. So uh, Who hasn't? You know, I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, that's probably the best. So there, there's two little mini stories within there. I also, for you, man. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> want to mention you, that... You took one for all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought so too at the time, but i, I got to be honest, it didn't do too well for me in the Interscope Records. They never hired me again, so, yeah. you know, say la vie, I guess. But, you know. There is that, yeah. I, I also have to bring up something that's on your Wikipedia page that I am um, dying to find out about. And it is the Zane's Sex Chronicles. Oh, boy. Please yeah, talk to us about don't this. Don't we all? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I would. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, it seems like a very odd move. And, and in fact, in retrospect, it, it definitely was. Um, yeah, I, you know, I thought it'd be great to work with the executive producer who. Uh, Suzanne DePass is her name, who mm-hmm. literally owns Motown Records, you know, signs Michael Jackson, um, you know, out of Gary, Indiana. And I thought it was going to be this great show with HBO, the whole deal. Um, yeah, the show's not so good. The show pretty much sucked. And, uh, you know, uh, so, yeah, that was an interesting move. I don't know if you, if you guys have ever seen it, but. Oh, um, yes. Oh, in, yes. <laughs> of course we I have. Only, I only watch Cinemax yeah. after 11 o'clock, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, that's. That's the time to watch it. I will say this. If, if you're going to watch it um, and you want to see anything that's actually, like, you know, better done, I would say watch the second season. We did a, a much better job and had less issues. Uh, first season, you can kind of leave it to just those certain parts and, you know, see what, what that works for you. But, uh, yeah, the second season was much better. So how if much, you, how much actual directing is involved with something like that? Are you in uh, every you single know, scene? It's, are you in there directing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, you know, I mean, I, I know the scenes you're speaking of, and, you know, there's lot, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I wouldn't even really call that directing. It's almost a weird kind of babysitting, which is, is bizarre, you know, yeah. to tell people to do certain things that uh, you, you know, you feel really uncomfortable telling them to do, uh, um, and then you become totally numb to it, and you find yourself saying things that you can't believe you're saying. It's an interesting world. I, I will give you that. 
Is it all based on a script or is it kind of ad-libbed? Um, well, the scenes that you speak, I mean, yeah, definitely the, the show overall is definitely based on a script. But uh, yeah, the scenes, you know, overall, it's like you, you, you know, you meet with the, the actors and you decide like a game plan <laughs> of, <laughs> of how you, uh, this cracks me up every time I talk about it, but yeah, you, you know, you come up with a game plan of the way you, you know, see the actions going and... Uh, do you use a whiteboard? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I walk over and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's very strange. I mean, the, I mean, the whole thing that's so strange about it, too, is, you know... I, yeah, but I'll tell you what. If I could ever tell you stories, uh, there, there, there would definitely be stories over beers for this one, because, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's even more interesting than anything I ever did in the video. I'll tell you that right now. Next time you are in Columbus, we will be getting those stories <laughs> yeah, from you. Yeah, yeah. I like that's it. Just... I like it. Consider it done. That's, that's fun. <laughs> Okay, we should move into our uh, album that we're reviewing. And I want to mention that it was actually suggested. It wasn't just my pick. I was actually leery to do this album because I have such an affection for it. It was suggested by uh, two folks, or two people, Jackson Murray and Jacob Grover, both suggested that we review You Prefer an Astronaut. So we're finally getting to it. We're hitting our our streak of uh, listener reviews right now. And um, I know we kind of got into the interviews and, and whatnot kind of into february and march but it's a lot of uh listener reviews from here on out we're gonna we got like 400 in the can that we have to review of uh listener wow. suggestions so uh 2014 we'll be back to our own picks so wow i know I, really I noticed you just took that off the website i was like where are, where's the bit about sending your suggestions and i was like oh that's right yeah <laughs> we're all backed up yeah <laughs> you can go ahead and send it in but um sorry all backed up can mean many different things when you're talking about Cinemax <laughs> shows, by the way. <laughs> I have no Were idea you, what that was means. It, but, uh, was it on Cinemax well. or HBO? I think that was on HBO, wasn't uh, it? it was, yeah, it was HBO, wow. and then uh, it, they also did a run on Cinemax as well. It was often, oh, yeah. often paired oh. with either Taxi Cab Confessions or The Cat House, if I Let's remember correctly. Uh, HBO's <laughs> way more tamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to take your word for that one because I actually stopped watching during that period. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to enjoy all of HBO's programming, both the original and yeah. the uh, movies. You know, so uh, let's get yeah. into hum, and specifically, let's get into the history of the band. History of the band. Uh, just want to mention that the history of the band is brought to you by us, unless you would like to sponsor. The History of the Band segment, feel free to send us an email, digmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. But for right now, please visit digmeoutpodcast.com to support the podcast, buy a t-shirt, make a donation. God, how great would it be if the History of the Band was brought to you by Zane's Sex Chronicles? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Get that on that. That would be pretty legit. Yeah. I, I think, you know what? I can make a phone call on that one. There, Here we go. Let's make it happen. Let's make yeah, all right. Yeah. We could deliver dozens of subscribers to HBO. <laughs> yeah. So, Hum, formed in 1989 by Matt Talbot in Champaign, Illinois. The lineup went through many changes. And on the first album, which was which was called Filet Show. <laughs> yeah. I didn't plan this. I didn't plan I this. I never could even put that together. I knew it was called Filet Show, but I never And it came out on 12-inch records. What, <laughs> what's going on? What happened? <laughs> you know what? Zane's maybe in, they, you know, they may be interested. We can maybe line this up quite nicely. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Matt, Talbot, 
<laughs> Matt Talbot didn't sing yeah. on the first record, actually. Uh, he took over vocal duties on their second album, Electra 2000, which came out in 1993. And that's when the primary lineup, 92 is when the when the main lineup of, of Hum formed. You got Talbot singing and playing guitar, uh, Tim Lash playing guitar, bassist Jeff Dimpsey, and drummer Bryant St. Pierre. And that's the, that's the main lineup for the band going forward. Uh, Electra 2000 was later re-released in 2002 on the Martians Go Home label with a new... Uh, final track. You'd Prefer an Astronaut, the album we're reviewing, was released on RCA Records. And three years later, in January of 98, Downward is Heaven Hurt, Heavenward was released on RCA Records. That same year, the Puppets and Aphids single was released. And that is the final official release from the band. In 2000, they were dropped from MCA. They suffered an accident on tour while in Canada and decided to break up playing their final show on December 31st in Chicago. However, the band reformed from 2000, in 2003 and sporadically began playing shows from 2003 up until last fall where they headlined the Onions AV Club Festival along with a number of other bands. Uh, they have made uh, suggestions that they might be recording old material that was never finished at least two songs that were played live but never placed on a record um, there's no plans for shows immediately but they said they are open if the price is right which is honest and that's all you can really ask for before we get into the facebook feedback i wanted to relay my personal experience discovering this band because uh, it relates to the release of the album so this album came out in april of 95 and uh, in may of 95 I was in college and went home, went back home to Buffalo, New York, where was, my parents live. And um, I was watching, I believe it was 120 minutes on MTV. And the video for this band came on. And I had, I don't think that we got the record or we got it and it was just ignored at our station. And I saw the video and I remember just being like, holy shit, what is this band? And uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but it's a pretty lo-fi video. I don't know if you had a chance to check oh, it right. out. But that was my that was my introduction, and then when I got back, I, I went out and, and bought the album almost immediately uh, from a record store in Buffalo. And then we got back and we started playing the record in that fall. But I don't remember. I think we made it maybe two singles in, and that was it. And then it was gone fairly quickly. Do you guys have any re recollection? Was this a band that you that you guys discovered in, in a similar way, whether it was on the radio, or was this something that you came to years later after other people had already discovered it? I heard it on the radio the first time. Uh, Stars was a pretty big single in Cleveland uh, where I was living at the time. And the funny thing was I probably heard it three, four, five times and I was convinced it was the new Smashing Pumpkins song. Never occurred to me it wasn't them. And then finally, you know, after hearing it probably the sixth time, they came on and said, no, it's Stars by the band Hum. I was like, well, well what? Because <laughs> uh, I had never heard, uh, I never heard guitars like that in any other place other than Smashing Pumpkins. Um, and even the the vocal, even though I would say this, you know, with perspective, I don't think the vocals sound anything alike at that time, though, you know, in the mid 90s, um, sort of that huge guitar sound and the unconventional, I guess, uh, smaller vocal, you know, that combination to me just epitomized the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, as I got in the record more and more, you know, they became their own band to me. But uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. I was, I was just I totally accepted it as being a Smashing Pumpkins song. What about you, Sean? 
yeah, it came to me through a, a, two totally different uh, ways. I was actually working in a record store at the time, a school kids, a school kids records down in Athens, and we got Been this there? big yep. box from R- Yeah, we got this big box from RCA, and it's funny at the time I had a friend of a friend who worked radio for RCA that I'd never even met, but we would always get records from him, and he said, yeah, you got to look out for this band, Hum. You're like, you know, I know you're into, I was into a lot of Steve Albini stuff and a lot of stuff that was coming out of, out of, you know, Illinois and the Midwest and definitely Poster Children was a big, big, you know, band to me. And he was like, yeah, you got to, you know, this guy uh, at RCA signed these two bands. One's called the Dave Matthews Band and the other's called Hum. And I was like, I fucking hate the Dave Matthews Band. I will not listen to fucking anything that is, you know, like no fucking way. Because, I mean, they were so huge in Athens, I would, like, throw records at people that bought Dave Matthews Band, which, whatever, in retrospect, I, I respect Dave Matthews. I'm still not a fan of the music, but whatever. So when it came, we got this big box of records from RCA and... Yeah, I mean, it was one of those records. I fucking put it on, and the first, you know, mere second. So I was like, all right, that's it. The guitar sound, the drum sound was like, this is amazing. And that's, yeah, that's that's a, that's why the story is so sad. The first time they toured on this, I, I did not see them. But uh, it's all those people out there. I'm sorry I lied to you, and I said that I saw the show, but I didn't. <laughs> and uh, that, 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 that's how it is. <laughs> so did the Dave Matthews Band album and this album came out at the same year? Uh, they were both they were both signed by the same A and R guy, and it was. Uh, okay. uh, I don't remember what's the name of the record, uh, the Dave Matthews one. I mean, obviously I didn't buy it because I was not a big fan, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it did. I mean, he wow. was this one A and R guy that, who had obviously had really good taste. You know, got them both, God. and uh, that's how I got into it. What a crazy Dave, time for music to think that those two bands were getting signed at the same time. Like I know uh, by the for, same guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, by the same guy. It just, it, it's astonishing. I really yeah. have got to be like, well, and I, I don't believe I've ever met him, but I, I know, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but yeah, he also signed this band called uh, 1000 Mona Lisa's, which were like a, mm-hmm. like a total dance, like acid, acid dance band. Like they were kind of like Lords of Acid kind of thing. Yeah. He, the guy obviously got it. So whatever. Interesting. Well, we asked for some feedback on our Facebook page. We do, if in case you don't know, folks, we do a preview Friday where we post what we're going to be reviewing the following week. And some peaceful people were nice enough to uh, give us their opinion. We actually had some divided opinion on Hum. Uh, David uh, Gorgos was not a fan. He said, and he was listening to not only uh, You'd Prefer an Astronaut, but also Downward is Heavenward. He said, I am falling asleep to both albums. The sound is not connecting with me at all, and the singer could not sound more bored. And then he checked out the Electra 2000 album, and he said, it has some great energy, energy at least. The other two albums sound like codeine on distortion. Wow. <laughs> However, we got a defender. Mr. Joel Oliphant, right from right here in Columbus, Ohio, said, You'd Prefer an Astronaut is one of my many Big Brother albums, meaning my older brother brought the record home, and if he loved it enough, I loved it. But I still think it holds up. The stars deserve to be a hit. And I'd Like Your Hair Long is probably my favorite. Lots of unexpected twists and turns. Right when you think you're in the outro, it changes direction Changes direction again to rock. And I like that his lackadaisical vocals don't usually bend to the guitar's whims. His voice hovers over whether the music is chunky or sighing. I like that. So yeah, and it, had... was, it was so well written that I asked him not to comment anymore because he was making us look bad. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> 
That's pretty pretty well done right there. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We had one other one. Jake King said, bands like Hum and Failure are why I like 90s bands so much. These bands have an alternative sort of style or sensibility, but yet they can get heavy and they know how to deliver their style with a, sick, a thick sound. These bands also have a very spacey tinge to it as well, which also which always produces some interesting sounds and chords in the music. As you can tell, I'm excited. This one's being dug out. So glad we were able to uh, make Joel and uh, Jake happy. Maybe we can convert David. Maybe if we dig into this one, we can convert him and explain why this record is well, so good. It was interesting I mean, that he probably. hadn't really heard the band before, you know? So mm-hmm. it was kind of cool to hear somebody fresh listen to it and uh, give their opinion. And it gave me a little bit of context because I'm pretty much on board with uh, all the sentiments you guys have expressed so far about the band. But I think seeing his um, comments made me think, like, had I not heard this band to start with and had I maybe not even heard some of the heavier mid-90s stuff and was more familiar with, I guess, you know, contemporary music, which is, like, aping this guitar sound in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I mean, they sort of set the... They, they set the... Um, I say they set the bar, but they, they set a trend with, with the kind of guitar tone that they're using on this that now is pretty much commonplace. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, Nickelback's guitar sound this big. Um, in 1995, this was, like, mind-blowing. Like, this was... Mm-hmm. The combination of how they were playing and the sound and the tones and things were just like, like I said before, the closest thing was probably the pumpkins, the early pumpkin stuff. So I, I guess it just gave me a perspective of, of maybe had you not heard it the first time, had you heard a lot of like current, um, you know, loud rock and then go back and listen to it, maybe maybe it wouldn't be as impressive. Maybe it's been aped so much by other people that it would just seem a little bit stale. Well, I mean, but I mean, at that time too. I mean, this almost—I mean, the first name came to my mind that many people maybe see as a negative. This was like Rush to me. I mean, it was also not only the the guitar sound, which was massive, the drum sound, yeah. which was massive, and nobody was doing it. They were going for like bigger kind of. I, mean, I wouldn't even call them anthems. I mean, they're, they're definitely anthemic, but they're also just like really fucking smart. I mean, yeah. you know, like, I think it was Joel that said it. I mean, they take turns where I mean, not a lot of bands were were deciding to. You know, have a like you know, like a fake bridge that would go into a, you know, a totally different chorus that was done in the same way as they did it two times before, but then they would just flip it around a bit. I mean, it's really, really smart stuff. You know, that maybe that was one of their, you know, one of the detriments. You know, because they they had hooks, but they were also very very challenging. Maybe to the, you know, to the to the average college rock listener at the time. Yeah, I like your hair long. Has it uh, exemplifies everything you just said? I mean, there's just all these yeah. accent notes and turnarounds totally. and
they play with um, there's even like you know playing with tempos and things like dragging things yeah. out there's all yeah. kinds of just genius stuff going on in that song yeah and 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 even even their look at the time which was you know kind of I mean they did not necessarily look I, for, I you know I'm putting the two fingers up in the air kind of thing alternative I mean these guys you know were wearing like baseball caps and were like you know probably you know, I know the lead singer was definitely like you know the nerdy indie rock guy but I mean, these guys, you know, were just like smart guys that also knew yeah. how to play music and, you know, maybe liked, you know, liked baseball just as much as they liked, you know, touch and go records. Or yeah. whatever. I mean, they were, you know, you could definitely, I always identified with that about, about their, you, know, you could tell that they were thinking a little bit, you know, outside of the traditional alternative rock box. Well, there were a lot of bands at that time that their image was not having an image, but I think they were right. genuinely a band that had no image. <laughs> like right. they were just right, who right. they were and honestly never gave it two thoughts they did start to cultivate an image on the second well the second M- right. rca release because they all dressed up in scientist coats and they right. were really playing up the nerdy scientific intelligent aspect of the band and that's even even though this album can be challenging at times that album gets really challenging there are some really exactly. bizarre like time signatures and and tempo changes and stuff going on in downward is heavenward but you can hear it right out of the gate with Little Dipper on this record. Yeah. I mean, it starts, it sounds like a rocket engine. It's just this yeah. blast of My Bloody Valentine style guitar. just this driving thudding thumping drum and bass and it's just it's it's almost doesn't even sound like a guitar it's just so it's just washing over you and i can understand where where david might hear that and go this is just boring if you kind of take it as a whole and understand you know how the whole thing works together this album builds and it kind of crescendos and it comes and then it, and it goes up and goes down and i think that that's sort of the genius of of even within certain songs, they'll do that, where they'll have just these like waves of noise and and chaos. But yet his vocal is just slipping right over the top of it. It's com- it's almost like completely unaffected by the by the noise and chaos that's going on underneath it. Yeah, wh- one of the things right. about Little Dipper, the first song that's kind of cool, is that um, uh, it's one of the few songs where the two guitar players are playing different for the most part. The whole song, like uh, the rest of the record. They're pretty close to playing the same part. One will play like some accent things and some other little runs and stuff that the other one won't. But that song, one of the guitar players, pretty much the whole song is just making this wave of noise, you know, through the whole thing. And every once in a while, it starts to form notes and chords. But for the most part, it's just like, whoa, you know, through the whole song, which is really cool. 
Yeah, no, I mean, they were almost, I mean, I would never compare them at all to like a Sonic Youth kind of idea, but they definitely understood like deconstructing parts and then slowly building back and one guitar player going off to the other. You know, one guy's starting to build, you know, the melody back in while the other guy's just doing noise. And sometimes it seems to me, I'm not a guitar player, so I don't know, but um, that they would flip it sometimes. Like so one guy would be doing the noise and then he'd flip over and he'd start doing the melody. And it was yeah. it's just really, really smart stuff. One of the things that's interesting is that Tim Lash, prior to joining Hum, was in a speed metal band. He was in a, he, huh. they were playing, yeah. So you can't, I, you can't necessarily hear it on the slower stuff. But if you hear some of the riffing that's going on and some of the faster songs, especially on the next yeah. record, but this record, there's a couple points where it's like in Stars, there's points where there's a breakdown between uh, the verse and the chorus. Right. It's pretty heavy. I mean, it's like oh, yeah. almost yeah. Pantera heavy. Yeah. Yeah. The pod has some crazy heavy riffs in it too. And so does I'd Like Your Hair Long. I mean, all three of those have... Has, and that was interesting to to, to know that because I I I assumed Matt Talbot did I don't know for some reason just assume he did everything in terms of you know wrote the songs wrote the riffs sang and then everybody else kind of filled in you know those riffs are definitely from somebody who spent some time playing some speed metal or some some metal at some point in their life and uh, yeah they're really cool I, I I thought of something that has nothing to do with it's totally a segue with where we're going in but I want to say it while I'm thinking of it, because if I forget, I'm going to be bummed. Uh, a weird bit of trivia. The, this record, actually, a big uh, backer of the record who actually got this out to more people than any college radio, if you can believe it, was actually Howard Stern. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. Bring that up. <laughs> he, yeah. He got behind it, and he he had them on the show, the whole deal, and, and like the, the guy I mentioned earlier that worked at RCA, who was like, back then, just a young kid at college radio. He was considered a hero for a little while because he was able to get Howard Stern to to get behind this record. So, <laughs> no, I remember that vividly. Uh, it was it was it was a little bit after I uh, heard the song, and I remember them being on the show. And it was funny because yeah. at that time the show was um, they didn't have a big studio, so the band had to come in right. and they basically all set up in different rooms. And then they, I remember them yeah. having all kinds of technical problems because they play so loud, and you know, the, obviously. <laughs> They're not set up in there to, to 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 handle a band that's playing as loud as they are, and they wouldn't turn down. They're like, "This is how we play. We're not turning our stuff down." <laughs> I just remember right. it was like it's it seemed like it took up the whole morning. Like they spent the whole show just, you know, setting up for this band and having a play. And yeah, I remember Howard being a huge fan of the song. So yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a, a very odd, but yeah, the true thing. I wish I would. I don't think I've ever. I, yeah, I never I never heard it or saw it when they had the TV show on. So wow, that's cool. Yeah, there can, is video uh, of it because um, it was on their e-show. I can funny. attest cool. to the loudness because in uh, it had to be probably 95 right after in the fall or maybe 96 the following year when they were touring for this record. They played at the basement of the asylum in Toledo, Ohio. Now, Jay and I went to Bowling Green, which is two hours from Columbus where we're at. And uh, T- Toledo's only 20 minutes from... Bowling Green, so it was easy to drive up there. And at the time, I was dating a girl who, uh, speaking of the Howard Stern episode, she was a big fan of Hum, and we watched that episode like, you know, this is the most amazing thing ever that Hum is on the E! Howard <laughs> right. Stern show. So we went up to Toledo to see them play, and this band Idaho opened for them. I don't know if you remember, these guys remember Idaho. Um, yeah, I do, yeah. 
Uh, they opened and then Hum played, and I brought earphones or earplugs, and they didn't work because this band was so loud, earplugs were irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've heard of Dinosaur Jr. being loud. I can't imagine another band being any louder. It was like it was like the feeling that you get when you're in an airplane and it suddenly descends really fast and you like you, right. know, you just you just lose your like stomach for a minute and it feels like it goes up into your throat. That's how loud they were. It was just it was amazingly loud. The fun part about it was is that afterwards, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, feeling you're gonna shit out your mouth, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but the fun part was. Well, I, I mean. Sadly, I, I don't that have about to mention this now. again, but I, I, you know, to mention it again, I wouldn't know. I didn't go to the fucking show. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, the end of the story is that I, afterwards, because I was just learning how to play guitar, and this is the album that I learned Drop D from. We were talking to um, uh, Mark Yarm a couple episodes ago about the Seattle scene and how they sort of discovered and then passed on Drop D from one another, from... The, you know, Buzz Osborne to Jerry Cantrell to so-and-so, you know, this was the okay. album where I was learning to play on an acoustic guitar, you know, basic chords. And then I got the guitar tab for stars and I was like, what's this other tuning? What do you mean I have to tune this string <laughs> You're like, why down? would I turn these pegs on the top of the guitar yeah. neck? What? Why would I do that? So when I went to the show, <laughs> I actually went, I, they were, it was a small club. So I went up to Matt Talbot afterwards and i asked him to sign my cd because i brought my cd because i was that kid and um he signed it i have it i still have it. it's in my garage in a case i said i just have a question um i know you guys play in drop d but can you explain the chords that you're playing in i'd hair like your hair long and he explained what the chord progression was because i couldn't figure it out and uh yeah that was uh that was my one and only uh you know rock star experience while i was at bowling green of all the uh all the shows that I went to, so that was pretty fun. Actually, no, that's not true. I did meet Jeff Tweedy. Oh yeah, got to. Oh wow, got to slip the Wilco reference in on this episode. <laughs> wow, that's oh, pretty huge. Man. Yeah, I, that I'm, that I'm, uh, that I'm it was, jealous of actually. It was Wilco it. before they were Wilco, before they were the Wilco right. band. Yeah, there's a couple songs towards the middle of the album. It kind of goes from, uh, "Suicide Machine" to "The Very Old Man" to "Why I Like the Robins," which you kind of get a little bit of a. I don't know if it's a softer side. But it's definitely yeah. a, a more mellow side to the band, especially with the very old man that being just sort of a slow-picked song. One of the things that I really like about Suicide Machine, especially, there's this weird guitar noise that sounds like a dolphin uh, that's going throughout that song. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. it's it's kind of lends itself to the whole i don't know the mystique of this album where it has these weird lyrics that kind of are about machines and space and then you get these weird metallic sounding guitars from here and that sound like rocket ships or machines working and um i i really like the colors that they're playing with and a lot of the guitar stuff that isn't just chords like they, they made a conscious effort to not just play a simple lead 
in a lot of places right. where they're actually coming up with kind of really interesting and some stuff that you just never even I've never even heard guitars played that way. And the atmosphere is a big part of it. I mean, like even I mean they were heavy and and I wouldn't necessarily say fast, but they were definitely heavy and hard. Even when the, the you know the the slower, more sparse part of the record, they found we you know ways to fill the gaps with stuff that almost made it just as interesting as the stuff that is full of you know lots of heaviness and bigness. I mean, it's it's still it's a to chew on, even when it's mellow. I mean, what what you're saying is like the colors are still there. There's just so much good stuff packed into that fucking burrito. The good one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really just a matter of changing the tempos. I mean, between the songs that are, you know, I guess we would consider, you know, uh, heavier or more rocking or whatever. It's just a tempo switch. I mean, the ones in the middle, they still have as big sounding guitars and they're still dark and heavy in a lot of ways, but they're just slower. Right. The one thing I, d I noticed that it's really fun to... Um, I didn't think I would enjoy it going back to albums I was really familiar with and and reviewing them. But um, one of the things I have enjoyed about doing that is um, it is an opportunity to kind of listen to it and force yourself to listen to it in different ways. Um, one thing I realized about uh, about this album, particularly the song Stars, is that it is a perfectly crafted pop song. And you wouldn't totally. normally think of it that way, I guess, in terms of just, you know, the overall perspective of things but when you break it down they do everything right that you should do when you write a pop song so like it starts with basically the hook they even use you know the nirvana style loud the quiet switch between right. the verse and the, and the chorus you know they start off small he gets right to the vocal hook at the beginning of the song which is crucial which is one of the few times he does that on the album and it really works really right. well the uh the the way that they do the um that guitar part in the it's not it's actually not the chorus like right after they do the chorus they do the um sort of the, the squealy guitar part mm -hmm. that's actually the verse which i didn't yeah, really right. realize before yeah and it's you know they go right back into the verse and they and they play that part and that part almost works like it, it kind of is the hook i mean the vocals yeah. not bad and the vocals good but then when you hear that guitar part that is like the memorable part and then i had never noticed how they play it really loud and they keep playing that part through the verse and they just keep playing it less and less loud and less and less accented throughout the verse right. to the point where they get to the end of the verse and they're still playing technically the same notes, just the dynamics have all changed. So it sounds like a different part and then they switch right. into the chorus again. And there's just all of this really brilliant stuff going on that, you know, when you just listen to it as a fan and you're just into it, you maybe don't break it down, you know, you know, hear it that way and don't break it down. But when you, you know, got to review it, you kind of do that. And it's like you realize the brilliance of it. Well, and, I, and I, I think that song's got one of the best drum fills ever. <laughs> the drum fill, all that. Yeah. As a drummer, that's D why you play. Yes. Totally. To write that drum fill. The giant D chord at the beginning is just one of the best single notes ever played in rock music. I mean, it just hits and rings out. And it's like, we are here. The song has now begun. Get ready right. to have your dick blown off because it is coming for you. Dick be gone. She thinks she missed the train to Mars. She's out back counting stars.
one thing, though, that you're, you're saying that is so dead on, if I could just add to what you're saying, I mean, yes, it is a perfect pop song. They did everything by design of, of what makes a great pop song. But the decisions they made with those decisions of pop decisions is what makes it so you can, I mean, you can be a snooty, you know, alt-rock fan or a snooty whatever, prog-rock fan, and you, you, like, it's still palatable. Like, you can be like, okay, this is a great pop song, but they made decisions to make it a smart pop song. Right. And that's, you know, it, it just keeps going back to that, at least in my ear. It's like, wow, it's just, you know, they, they never sold out for sold out staking um, on any, is that a word? For sold out sake, you know, <laughs> on, on any one decision. You know, they, they tried to make, if it's a really obvious decision, they tried to make it smart. Well, you do you know? think that they had any amb- ambitions about, I don't know, trying to be more commercial or try to have more hits or, I mean, it I try to, I'm trying to, that way. I mean, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, the, the heaven word, I think is even harder to swallow, but I actually, in some ways, even like better. I mean, they de- they definitely didn't go in the direction of like, you know, okay, here's our three minute pop song. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's I, sure. that I see. In, but now they're, re- now they're willing to do shows uh, if the money's right. Right. <laughs> like, well, guys, I mean, we should have thought of that 15 years like, ago. Fuck. Yeah. And why didn't we just write a fucking three minute song? God damn it. Yeah. Well, they did. Coming home on the on the next record is three minutes. That's it's right. just insanely crazy song with like totally. screaming and, and distorted vocals and yeah. I love uh, the that one. Track. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention in Jay, you talked about you know revisiting the album and listening to different things. I had a much greater appreciation for Jeff Dimsey's bass playing. Uh, if you listen to it, especially in Stars and the Verses, he's doing some really melodic stuff. And all over the record, I think he's kind of underappreciated in, in the way that he's carrying a lot of the stuff, especially in the softer songs. He's doing a lot of runs and, and really cool parts. I think Brian St. Pierre, the drummer, is just a beast. And, oh, yeah. you know, you mentioned the drum fill that he did. Um, he's not even playing drums anymore, which is so depressing. From what I've gathered, I visited uh, hum.net, which is h-u-m.net. If you go to their message board, he's actually like, he sold his drums to one of the hum fans. So yeah. I mean he's just he's just out of playing music except for when I they play ran shows. Into, I ran into a guy in a bar in Hol- in, in Hollywood, the, the Frolic Room to be exact. Uh, a guy that I guess is he said he was one of his best friends and said that he um, he didn't say he sold it. He said he actually gave it to a hum fan. Oh. And that I guess he's, he's like a he's like a he's like a high school football coach or something. He just totally is not he's just a sports fan and like yeah, he's like a. I, I think he was he said he was a, a football coach. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean, insane. hey, as long as you're happy, but <laughs> yeah, he definitely, totally. he definitely, uh, he definitely did some amazing stuff on this record. Like I said, that uh, you know, there's a couple other moments on here where he really stands out, and it, it's just the right mix of um, great timing, the right part, you know, everything coming together. He knows how to like do enough, but not overplay. You know, which is crucial yeah. for a band like this. You know, I could very easily see, you know, some drummers on this stuff would get way too busy and everything would get, you know, sort of watered down. And he doesn't do that. I mean, there's some songs, particularly like the uh, Little Dipper. He, I think it's Little Dipper, where he he's barely playing hi hat. He's just, you know, leaving all the space in there. And as a drummer, I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, how do you make yourself do that? Like your natural tendency is want to fill those things in just to kind of keep your body moving. And he's just like totally holding back and just perfectly, you know, 
doing exactly what the what the song needs to to, to do. And I, I want to throw in you mentioned the bass playing is is really good, and that's something I agree that I realized listening to it um, now that I didn't quite get the first time. One mm-hmm. of the big reasons I think for that is uh, the tone is is not always great on the bass. Um, it's really kind of middle of the road and uh, obviously it's it gets washed up by those guitars quite a bit um yeah and then i don't know if you guys thought the same thing listen to it now compared to other records but this is mastered really quietly um yes you got to crank it it's like half the volume of, of a lot of other uh albums that i have and you, you know it, you just get in the habit of listening to different things you kind of keep the volume the same and this comes on and if you don't have it loud, you're not appreciating it at all. If you yeah. don't have it loud and Stars comes on, you have no idea that song started. Right. Right. It's so quiet. Yeah, it's that's the one, I think, drawback. The second record isn't like that. The second record's, I think, right. at the correct level, which, you know, yeah. maybe the vinyl isn't the same way. Maybe it was just something to do with the digital mastering and on CD or something like that. But yeah. I wouldn't I mind if they remastered could, and released this. I wish you could find the vinyl. They did press vinyl for it on the Martians label, but yeah, I looked up. I looked it up on Discogs one time, and I think it's like two or three hundred bucks. It's not uh, not a lot of them around because they didn't they didn't do the vinyl through RCA. They had a special deal uh, that they could do the, the vinyl independently. Which I believe so, yeah, Martians Go Home was their own label because that's their um, yeah, songwriting that sounds right uh, company. You know what? Whatever their songwriting or publishing deal was, so. In terms of bands of this era, you know, it was mentioned by, I believe it was Jake on the Facebook post, Failure. I think that's a fairly close comparison. Failure was a little more, I felt like a little more uh, aggressive in a lot of ways. Obviously, I think that Deftones White Pony album is actually, is is a good comparison. And it's a little bit later. I think, what is that, like 98, 99? 99, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't feel like there's a lot. We mentioned especially Pumpkins. I don't feel like there's a lot of other bands that were doing this heavy, but not. You know, usually if you got this heavy, you were either screaming the vocals, or right. it was really aggro or something like that. I can't think of a lot of bands that had this sort of melodic, soft approach to their vocal take, but were just so quicksand. Quicksand was one that comes to mind just at the time that I was listening to it. The same time, the kind of. I know it's totally two different worlds. I mean, Quicksand was obviously more New York and doing mm-hmm. their own, you know, grindcore kind of thing, I guess. That's the only one I can think of. I mean, you know, which I guess goes into like the Bark Market conversation as well. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, you know, Poster Children, but it was another band from that same area that was kind of similar, you know, kind of kind of similar, but nobody's really doing exactly this that I, that I can think of. Yeah, I would agree on the Quicksand. And it was kind of funny to... Uh... And just took a glance at Hum's Wikipedia page, and it starts off describing them as a post-hardcore band. And I guess I would have yeah. never described them that way. I, I mean, I suppose in hindsight, maybe that's kind of what they were. I mean, I, I would be comfortable to s- describing Quicksand that way, but right. boy, I don't know. I, I just they don't to me they don't have any of the I don't hear any of the 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 punks part, you know, other than them no. being loud. You know, I don't know where the punk part are being unconventional and in the way that they sort of combine, you know, loud guitars with um, the sort of softer vocal. I, I don't know where the, right. punk, the the hardcore, the punk part would come from in that. I, I guess you could kind of say there's some, maybe like early Husker Du, you know, oh, this, yeah. 
that kind of sound. Ah, that that's a really specific. You know, there weren't a lot of bands that sounded like that. I mean, Husker Du was kind of an oddball for their time in, ter- totally. in terms of the their earlier stuff before they kind of got rid of more of the noisier things. I, I kind of, I guess, even the early Jesus and Mary Chain um, sure. was kind of noisy, but again, that was way more angular and and even though it's heavy, it's never really staticky or or distorted to the point where it's unlistenable and some of that early Jesus and Mary Chain stuff is like so distorted it almost gets that way. It I think Swerve becomes... Driver is a kind of a I know we've yeah. mentioned that sure. in a couple other in terms of just being they're kind of shoegaze but really not. In the same way that even Hum could be considered kind of shoegaze but really right. not. Yeah, I would say Hum is more like shoegaze with a metal uh, like aspect to it like you know they can yeah, be shoegaze yeah. but then all of a sudden they unleash this you know this monster riff and everybody just locks together and they turn into black sabbath for 45 seconds and then and they go I mean, into this it, it, creepy it, party camp almost kind of fits perfectly i mean when you kind of break down what they are they kind of when you when you say it this way they were a shoegaze band from the midwest which they were probably all brought up on you know midwest kind of metal and that was their interpretation of you know what shoegaze would be if you were from illinois you know yeah uh, cross with science kind of fiction like, novels are there more bands from from chicago champaign illinois sort of area that we're not thinking of that sounded like this because i mean I, I, like we said i keep the, going back to post, i keep going back to poster children but um i i know there were more but i, I i'm not really they're not coming to me right um but yeah poster children were, were very similar and they were kind of like the big the big brothers to hum they kind of had like a pixies meets shoegaze thing that you know the female bass player the whole deal um but very similar kind of loud quiet loud quiet but less of the metal uh hum brought the the good metal you know definitely much yeah. more so in terms of usually we try to get to a point where we say who of bands that are around today if you like this band you're gonna like hum the only one band that i thought of was silver sun pickups that if you're oh, right. into that that band you probably could get into hum probably more this the, the record after this which has a little bit more there's a little more up-tempo songs on that one i'm thinking of like uh green to me and and coming home and and those tunes. Um, but other than that, I had a hard time of thinking of bands that are doing this like heavy but melodic. That seemed to go out. It seemed to leave once the new metal bands came in and, and the Creed bands were melodic meant screaming and, and breaking stuff. And it did not mean right. having any sort of sense of, you know, pop melody, even though you're being heavy. Uh, was there any bands that you guys thought of that might be uh, comparable today? There's a lot of metal bands that I think from a music standpoint, if you're into the sound that, that you would, you know, it, it would be a good fit. So like, I think we've talked about it before, Russian Circles or 
Ghost Brigade or Opeth or even this band called Coretta. That's that's kind of just in terms of it's it's heavy, but it's smart and it's a little bit creative. I think the thing that throws throws it off though is the vocal. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think any of those bands have a vocal anything like Hom does. So if you're looking for sort of the rougher, growling kind of vocal that matches the music, they're not bringing that. You know, they're bringing a they're bringing a contrast. I, I described him, and I was trying to capture come up with a way, good way to describe what he sounded like. And the best I could come up with was uh, Kermit the Frog. <laughs> it's just sort of like <laughs> this. Like the lyrics are like super romantic, but like you know, meek. You know, quiet but con- you know, sort of still confident. It just—I don't know. For some reason, it just struck me as like his personality is like Kermit the Frog singing over top of uh, these super heavy songs. That is that is a brilliant <laughs> comparison right there. I just have to say that that is that's awesome. <laughs> wow, I had never thought of that, but that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that is good. I mean, that you even have. The, <laughs> did he wear like big glasses? He did. Yep. Yeah, yeah big giant yeah. glasses, kind of like Kermit Frog's eyes. Well, more like, I guess more like Beaker, if you're going Muppets. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. of the, the scientist's uniform. I think Beaker had one note, though. I mean, I don't really think he said a lot. Right. It's my deep. Deep. Yeah. yeah. But the look. The look. He had yeah. the look. He definitely had the look. Well, we usually, we were trying with recent episodes to uh, wrap up with a three-point scale. High end of the scale is it's a worthy album middle of the scale is a better ep and the low end of the scale there's a decent single um i think we're all in agreement maybe someone out there maybe david disagrees with us but i think we're all in agreement that this is a worthy album that this is something that you oh, need yeah. to check out and mm-hmm. listen to all the way through it's only nine songs man yeah it's a yeah. short how often, record yeah. how often is it yeah. that we get to review an album from the 90s it's only nine songs they're all like 15 yeah songs 16 songs it's like that's God, a smashing man. pumpkin single from the 90s yeah nine totally. songs yeah but now we, was i correct was i correct earlier because i mean unfortunately i got i've got to be honest i i don't have the, the record with me here because of, of moving reasons that i you know went back and reacquainted myself with it as much as i needed to but am i correct in saying like all right there's only nine songs but weren't they longer songs or is it that just my is that just my uh, perception they're yeah. all in the five-minute ballpark. There's um, yeah, four, four-minute, four four-minute, five-minute, five, six-minute, two-minute, four, five, six. So okay. you know yeah. they're not epic. They're not like all no, eight plus. Epic, but... It's a forty-five-minute album with basically yeah. Every song averages about four and a half to five minutes, with the long yeah, song, right, last song being bad. the longest. And actually, the last song is the longest and it has the least amount of lyrics because it's pretty much. A long outro of just music and noodling, and which the second because, record doesn't have. The second rank record's longer uh, with songs, but it's a much more compact record in terms of there's not as much jamming on that record. I mean, they come in right. and the la- that last song is one of the heaviest on the record and most up tempo. So what right. what is the first? I've never heard the very first album that he do- that Mal Talbot doesn't sing on. What does that sound like? It's not very good. It's it's kind of it, it. That's where I could see where you could say post punk, because it's much more jagged. There's not. It doesn't have this guitar sound. They didn't really get right. this guitar sound until the second record, Electra Two Thousand, and even then, it's it's not as clean as this one is. And he's doing even though he's doing the vocals, he hasn't. There's not as much uh, emphasis on the vocals. 
It's much more riff oriented on the guitars. There's not really a defined single for that record, like there is with this one. I mean, this song, this album had two, at least two singles that I know of. Uh, Stars and then I'd Like Your Hair Long was uh, released right. as a single as well. And I think they might have released the pod as a third single that didn't really do it anything. Did. So what, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you guys. Is that's interesting? I didn't I didn't realize the other singles existed because Stars was I mean such a big alternative radio hit. Why do you think the other songs weren't? I mean they're not that that different, right? I mean, I think it I would was... I would have to. I mean I hate to sound like a record company guy, but it's like an image thing. They they, they had they had very mm-hmm. little. You know, they weren't coming out and, and giving a lot of image, which I think, you know, as much as all the bands in the you know, 90s wanted to act like they, you know, weren't performers. When we look at it now, I mean, you know, Billy Corgan was absolutely a performer. And, you know, yeah. you know, most of the bands of that era, as much as they acted like they weren't, were. And this band, you know, there were no blow ups. There were no like, you know, destroying things on stage or whatever. I mean, you know, I've like I said, I'll say it again. I did not see the show. I, I decided <laughs> not to go. But everything I've ever seen, like on YouTube and whatnot, I mean, they, they weren't really bringing a lot of, you know, sexual chemistry or any kind of things that were, you know, kind of selling records at that time. That would be my thought. You know? I'm going to say, yeah. I think 95 is kind of the first year of the 90s where you start to see the the dominance of the grunge bands, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Nirvana... Yeah. If you want to lump in Smashing Pumpkins with that, you can, but I don't really lump them with grunge. But you start to see them not be dominant on alternative radio, and you start to see you're better than Ezra's, uh, your your collective souls, bands that like they would have one hit for their album and then it would move on. Collective Souls is actually a bad example because they actually had like three singles off that first record. Better than Ezra is a good example. I mean, they had one song. '95 is the year Soul Asylum had Misery. Which was a big right. single for them. Better, better than as I had. Good. You had a lot of like bands that had one hit and they were gone. And I think that I, Hum kind of fell into that category where they had one hit and they were gone. And it was yeah. like, what's the new Hootie and the Blowfish song? Okay, I want to hear that. Right. Yeah, I, I think the I mean, thing was was, uh, was, was, that, was that about the same years as like uh, you know, God awful like Matchbox Twenty and Third Eye Blind and all those kind of like more like what the hell you'd call that was was that kind of the same year? I can't remember those years. Post grunge. The yeah, first generation of post grunge. Right. I think. It... Um, well, yeah, the '96 is actually their first album, so it's the it's you're talking about oh, not even a year later. Yeah. The real so fall of the '90s is is '96 to '97 because so... fall of '96 is when like Soundgarden splits, and then <coughs> sp- spring of '97 or winter of '97 is when you have like Hanson, the Spice Girls. <laughs> Backstreet Boys, right. you know, Jeez. all those bands. 97 is like when everything dies. And within a, within a year, Korn, Limp Bizkit, Creed, all those bands start to make an impact. So right. uh, this is like, this is the transitional period. You know, you're going to get between 94, 95, 96, you're going to get Presidents of the United States and, you know, all those, the Toadies and bands like that popping up Right. that had right. like one song and then they were gone. That's I when remember, they were searching for a Nirvana. I remember like right. that, like Melancholy came out in 95. And I remember that was, you know, sort of the the time when Pumpkins dominated. Because what you said, like all those gr- early grunge bands, there was sort of like an opening. And it was like, all right, what's going to be next? 
and right. Melancholy came out and it was their big epic double album and it had tons of songs from it that were you know on the radio and stuff and I remember being very you know everything was about the pumpkins for about two years there and like I said I mean to me at the time they hum fit right in and the thing that was odd is that a lot of those one hit wonder bands uh, particularly in the 90s you know the the alt rock or indie rock style ones the the single didn't sound anything like the rest of the record or the quality of the right. single was completely different than the rest of the record and the, it's not the case with home like there's at least you know the the two other songs they released as singles were just as good as stars is so it, it's it's kind of crazy I, I i think that you're onto something with the the image part like just in terms of them not being able to sort of take the next step that you see a lot of bands do like billy corgan went right. from being the guy that you know wore the the gr- ugly green sweater and had the bad hair to the bald head and the Zero. silver star yeah. on his chest. And you know what I mean? They, right. they, 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 there's like, you, you know, let's like, okay, it's our time. And then you take the next step in your evolution and they put on lab coats, you know? So. <laughs> right, 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 right. And that wasn't definitely not as sellable. Right, right, right. So, you know, I mean, definitely, if, it definitely, I mean, the, the chicks didn't really care about seeing, you know, the lab coat as much as, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, you know, the ladies cared about seeing uh, the bald head and the zero shirt either, but it was something to sell. And, you know, I hate, I hate to even, you know, get into that conversation, but, you know, that's maybe just the sad truth that it just wasn't, you know, the time it was making the way for more of the sticky or I don't know, you know, and their, mm-hmm. their stick with the lab coats maybe wasn't, uh, wasn't quite working. I mean, which is too bad because I mean, I remember very well being in LA, that was the first year I moved there and, RCA definitely got behind the record because I remember uh, Tower Records, both the Tower Records in LA had massive billboards for the Hum record, for the Heavenward record. And I just remember even at that time thinking, there's no fucking way that's going to work. I mean, there's just, it's not going to happen. And right. uh, as much as I wanted it to, um, it didn't. It was an interesting time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it's yeah, def- 15, 17 years ago. It's crazy to think about. <laughs> I know. I don't even like thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> we need to uh, we need to wrap things up so we can uh, try not to have another hour long episode and uh, drive sure. our listeners crazy with our extended bullshitting. So I'm going to say so, thank you to Jackson Murray and Jacob Grover for suggesting this album. I was happy to be able to tackle it, and I hope we maybe reached out to David and said. Give it another shot. Give it another shot, David. Turn, uh, turn it up louder. Turn it up. Yeah, turn it up. Go outside. Get in your car. Crank this. Drive around. And um, if you want, add some hallucinogenics. That might help. Um, <laughs> not when you're driving. I wouldn't suggest that. Okay. That could get bad. Park then. Park, park, <laughs> park first or, you know, get into a Go- teepee. Yeah, get into get into a medicine uh, shack. <laughs> medicine sack. That's brilliant. Shack, medicine shack. Oh, you know, shack. you know, it's it's one of the with a peace pipe. Uh, no, no, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's pretty good though. I think a sack I would be great. Medicine or a sack, whatever works. Whatever you got space for. You know, you might not have right. time for you know, or time to build a teepee. You might want to just a sack. Uh <laughs> Sean, thank you for joining yeah. us. I am glad we have been able to get you on the show. Uh, hopefully, we did not uh, bring back too many bad memories with our inquiries about Zanes. And um, oh no, it was great. This was my my honor, honestly. Great, thank you. And if you want to check out uh, 
Sean's work, you can go to seanfosterdirector.com. He's got clips of uh, various videos and snippets of uh, things that he's directed. And you can also check him out on Wikipedia. One of the only people that I know that has a Wikipedia page. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I had one up for yeah. our band for like 10 minutes, and they were like, you're not a real band, and got rid of the Wikipedia page. So that's that's pretty awesome that you got one. So, Oh, I, I wanted to... Thank- Still standing. Yeah. I did want to mention we keep our uh, our streak alive because I noticed on the uh, well maybe you're gonna uh, maybe this isn't true it's Wikipedia so it could not be true it says on Wikipedia that the short film Nancy Boy which you are in pre production on which you co wrote yeah. uh, is has music composed by Troy Van Leeuwen yes yeah yes we're, we're, uh... now that keeps yeah. our streak alive of talking about somebody connected to Mark Lanigan. Because Mark Lanigan played in, uh, or has played in uh, Queens of the Stone Age, which Troy Van Leeuwen has played in as well. And that now makes, I believe, 17,000 episodes in which we have made some sort of <laughs> tangential connection to Mark Lanigan. And we will eventually have him on the show after we stop quivering in fear at him shooting, up, shooting at us with a shotgun. <laughs> well, you should also have Troy on. He's, uh, he's the raddest guy. Oh, so, yeah, he's... I, I, Troy I was know also he in, dig what you're doing. He, he was, was in, in failure, failure as correct? well, by the way. Yeah. Well, maybe we will have him on because we need to get into some of those early failure records because those are just as good as uh, Fantastic Planet, which we got oh, to oh. last year. Wait, so. which failure records is he on? He was on, I think he was actually on the one after Fantastic Planet. He was on one of the, like, I want to say maybe the last. Two. That is the last one. That's and the last one. Okay, so maybe, yeah. maybe there's Magnified and then. Uh, magnified yeah. and um, I'm drawing a blank, but there's another one, that one that Steve Albini did, and then one that the band did together. So, uh, what's the one with the frog on it? That's magnified. Oh, frog, magnified. Okay, I, yeah. you know it's slipping my memory, but I think he was just on maybe the last one or two, and then he he toured the whole time with them. But anyway, yeah. Long story short, he's a great guy. You should have him on. That'd be awesome. You can slip us his number after the show. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, I want to mention to everybody out there, uh, please, if you like what you heard today, consider leaving us some feedback at iTunes. We would like to uh, get our ratings up and uh, you know maybe get on the front page, and then the money will roll in, and Jay and I can finally get those Bentleys that we've been eyeing. So, uh, Or we could pay our bills and actually be able to afford to operate this podcast. One or the other, whichever one makes more sense. Bentleys are paying for the podcast. Hey, at this point, I'll just shoot for being able to um, run a giveaway contest and, and be able to afford to ship internationally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which we, we just got our balls busted for that. So our yeah. hope is to make enough money that someday we could, we could send a free record to somebody in uh, Australia. Jay, Sean, thanks for being here. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.